This is Laura Lummer, the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach. I'm a healthy lifestyle coach, a clinical Ayurveda specialist, a personal trainer, and I'm also a breast cancer survivor. In this podcast, we talk about healthy thinking and mindfulness practices, eating well, moving your body for health and longevity, and we'll also hear from other breast cancer survivors who have re-engaged with life and have incredible stories to share. This podcast is your go-to resource for getting back to life after breast cancer. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Lummer, and I am thrilled to be able to share this show with you today. We have a very special guest on the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach Podcast today, Dr. Robert Nagorny, and I'm going to tell you more about him in just a moment. But I want you to check out this entire episode. It's a little bit longer than I normally post, but we have such great conversation and we touch on everything from new, more effective ways to treat cancer to the importance of exercise in both treatment and recovering from treatment. We talk about nutrition. We talk about living with metastatic disease. So much good stuff in this episode. And Dr. Nagorny is just a brilliant physician, so talented, so experienced, and so passionate about his work. So let me tell you a little bit more about him. Dr. Robert Nagorny is the founder and medical director of the Nagorny Cancer Institute. He has been internationally recognized as a pioneer in cancer research and personalized cancer treatment for over 20 years. He received his medical degree from McGill University in Montreal, and after internal medicine residency at the University of California, Irvine, he completed a fellowship in medical oncology at Georgetown University and a second fellowship in hematology at the Scripps Institute. Dr. Nagorny is the author of numerous abstracts, peer-reviewed articles, and books. He's authored more than 100 manuscripts, book chapters, and abstracts, including publications in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Gynecological Oncology, the Journal of National Cancer Institute, and the British Journal of Cancer. He's also the author of Outliving Cancer, a fantastic book, which I'll post the links to in the show notes for this episode. Dr. Nagorny appeared in the highly acclaimed TEDx talk and was featured in the July 23rd, 2019 Wall Street Journal with an article that you'll hear us talking about in the show, and I'll post the links to again in the show notes. He is a pioneer in human tumor functional profiling. And basically what that means is taking the tumor and analyzing it to see what drugs would be most effective at fighting that tumor, rather than just using a out-of-the-box or canned type of chemotherapy to treat cancer patients. He's used his trademark analysis to develop novel drug combinations, including the cisplatin gemcitabine doublet that is today used around the world for recurrent breast and ovarian cancer treatment. His international collaborations have led to important advances in our understanding of the metabolic basis of breast carcinogenesis. And as impressive as all of that sounds, and as impressive as all of that is, one of the things I love and respect the most about Dr. Nagorny is that with all of his experience, all of his accomplishments, he truly understands that each cancer patient is an individual. He respects and appreciates the uniqueness of each person's body as well as their cancer. 
and he understands how difficult cancer treatment is on the physical body. So his research and his discoveries are not only spectacular because of their effectiveness, but because he's looking for and bringing awareness to better ways to defeat cancer without exposing cancer patients to unnecessary toxic treatments. So I first heard about Dr. Nagorni from a dear friend of mine who is a mind-body oncology coach and knew him through his work as the director of the Todd Cancer Pavilion at Long Beach Memorial Hospital. Aaron Somerville, who was actually one of my first interviews on this podcast back in episode number three, and she had a tremendous respect for Dr. Nagorni because of his approach to treating cancer and his open-mindedness and holistic views of health. So she initially recommended his book, Outliving Cancer, to me, and I absolutely loved it. I loved his perspective and his respect of the patient in the treatment. So I was thrilled when his people reached out and asked me if I would have him as a guest on this podcast. So without making you wait any longer, I cannot wait to share this interview with Dr. Robert Nagorni. Enjoy. Dr. Nagorni, thank you so much for joining us today on the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach. Well, I'm happy to be here. I told our audience about your background and also about your book, Outliving Cancer. And one of the things that grabbed my attention right away in your book was something that you wrote in the preface. And I'd love to get us started off with that quote. Sure. You wrote, to some, my work has seemed disruptive, but in an era where oncologic advances are measured with micrometers, I accept the moniker of disruptor as a badge of honor. And I loved hmm. that because having been a cancer patient myself, I think a little disruption is, uh, is a good thing in that field. <laughs> and, but I'd like to hear from you now on how your perspective of and your treatment of cancer is really what has earned that badge for you. Well, to start off, um, we have had a slow but progressive improvement in outcomes, particularly in breast cancer. Uh, breast cancer being a, a principal cause of cancer uh, in women, in American women, one out of eight, one out of, one, one out of nine. So this is a disease that afflicts 268,000 women in the United States alone every year and between one and two million women around the world. Mm -hmm. So this is a major uh, public health issue. We have slowly improved our thinking about this disease and other cancers, moving from, I think, a rather crude model where we thought we would cut it all out. And the original uh, radical mastectomy was so disfiguring and so uh, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. And then the modified radical mastectomy and then lumpectomy. And finally, finally began to look at this disease as a systemic disorder. And when we did that, we began to weave into the work the hormonal milieu and the use of less toxic, more effective smart bombs. And we're now finally getting to the point where we can manage, if not cure patients, and prolonged survival is common. The problem I think we have is that we've tended to be kind of reductionist. Our thinking about cancer medicine has been I think sometimes too simplistic. And one of the problems for me was that we tended to lump everybody together. I mean, it was only a scant few decades ago before we didn't even understand that there were estrogen receptor and estrogen receptor negative and positive tumors. I mean, imagine how fundamental that was, or the fact that we didn't know about HER2, or we didn't understand about the BRCA ideas. So these concepts have enabled us to slowly drill down onto patients individually, but I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we've done enough. 
So, so what I'm, well, I guess if I'm disruptive, my tendency is to believe that every patient is unique and that their tissue, their biology will instruct us on what to do. Some people may do very well with simple treatments. Some patients may need very intensive treatments. And the problem today is we tend to lump everybody together. So I guess if I'm disrupting anything, it's business as usual medicine. And that's a good thing. In my opinion, that's a good thing. Yes. And now your perspective of cancer is something, I mean, there's kind of a controversy over it, right? You say that cancer is a metabolic disease where a lot of physicians and a lot of the view is that it's a genetic disease. Could you talk a little bit about what the difference is and why it's important to understand that difference? Well, I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. I don't think you have to say that it's a genetic or non-genetic disease. I think what, what it really is, is that it's more fundamental than just the genes. The genes are the informatics of the cell. They're the kind of blueprint of the cell. And for anyone who's ever had a home designed, if you take a very good blueprint and you build it on a, on a earthquake fault, or you build it on a, on a, a sandy lot that gives way, or there's a sinkhole, Mm-hmm. then the best design turns out to be a very bad place to live. And, mm-hmm. and in a way, cancer genetics is like the blueprint you're given. It's what your contractor, your construction team does with it that makes you the cell or the tumor or the person you are. So we became interested in not what you had to work with, but what you did with it. And that, that fundamental difference is the difference between genotype, which is genetics, Mm-hmm. and phenotype, which is biology, which is physical reality. So my interest became interested in phenotype, and I like to study cells and how cells behave. And not long after I began to do that, I, I began to realize that cancer cells live and die by their ability to make and use energy. And that's, that's really the field of metabolism. So as you go from DNA and information into function, a lot of function is metabolic activity. Cells must make and use energy to exist. So our most recent effort in the last few years has moved us away even from genes and RNA, even from cellular behavior into cellular biochemistry. What, what uh, sources of protein, nutrients, glucose, lipids, what are the materials that your cells use to make the energy that keeps them alive? And after all, since cancer is a disease of cells that want to live too long, they seem to be able to make energy better than the rest of the cells. Are we able to target that? Is it going to be possible to undermine the metabolic basis of cancer and really change this, uh, this outliving or this long-living cancer into a cell that dies quickly. Okay. And that is something that was really interesting to me in your book as well, because I think it is a very common belief that cancer just grows exponentially, whereas you talk about in the book that it's not so much that it's growing so fast as that it won't die. Is that correct? Right. Oh, yes, yes. And I think that's another fundamental change in our thinking. Um, Most breast cancers uh, that arise in the breast and are found at a mammogram have been present in the breast for years, sometimes a decade or longer. And the reason that it takes so long for us to find them is that cells don't grow very quickly. What they do is accumulate into the masses that we find on mammograms or ultrasounds or MRIs, but it takes one cell several months to become two and another several months to become four, and another several months still to become eight. So it takes many, many, many divisions to get to the point where you can even find them. And, and yes, I think that 
the drugs and the treatments and the approaches that we've taken and that, that you know, the chemotherapies we use are largely designed to stop cells from growing when they work, when drugs work, when the, when the chemotherapies and things that we use are effective, it's really because they induce the state of cell death, one form of which is called apoptosis, but of, there are many forms of programmed cell death. So, so that's what we measure in the laboratory. How do drugs cause cells to die? Not stop growing, but die. That's really interesting. And so that's really at the Nagorno Cancer Institute, that's what you focus on. And my understanding is it's a very customized approach, right? As you as you already said, each cancer is different, but also each body that it's growing in is different. So can you talk a little bit about how you customize that approach to treating someone who has cancer? Sure. Well, the, the, uh, the drugs that we use, the, the chemotherapy drugs, and for patients who might be listening to this, the, the names will be familiar. They're drugs like cyclophosphamide or cytoxin, uh, doxorubicin or adriamycin, uh, taxol or taxotere. These are drugs that are used every day in the clinical setting. And, and you know, they work uh, in many patients, they work well, and some patients not so well. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that they work by causing cell injury. They do something to the cell that it doesn't like. And, and whether that injury is to stop it from undergoing mitosis, which is the actual process of cell division, or whether it's damage to the machinery of the cell DNA, and that's like alkylating agents, all of the drugs have their own mode of action. Now, if the cancer cell is really good at defending itself against one form of injury, let's say, for example, cytoxin. Mm-hmm. Well, if cytoxin injury is not going to be read by the cell as being damaging, if the cell laughs it off, then all of the cytoxin you give these patients, which causes hair loss and nausea and vomiting and lowered blood counts, all that cytoxin is doing nothing for that patient. Mm-hmm. On the flip side of the coin, adriamycin, which works by a different mechanism, might be ideal for this patient, and they won't get enough of it because you're giving them too much of the other drug that isn't working. So, so, so what we've gotten interested in is the idea that cancer patients aren't just some generic uh, uniform uh, population. They're actually discrete individuals who have their own very personal profiles of response to drug. And if you can get a, a portion of their tumor into the laboratory and, and expose it to these drugs of interest, the adriamycins and the cytoxins, well, then you can say, well, gee, this drug is good. This drug is bad. Let's not use this one, and let's make sure to use lots of this one. And that's, that's kind of the premise of, of our work is to individualize at a cellular level what drugs to use and what drugs to avoid. And in a traditional setting, is that because I know many cancer or breast cancer survivors who were diagnosed through maybe through imaging typically and uh, biopsy and is that biopsy then not treated to see what chemotherapy agents it would be sensitive to? Is that not the traditional way of going about it? You know, I'm awfully sorry to tell you that it isn't. It, it is not what most physicians do, and there were there were reasons why they didn't. In the years past, everybody thought cancers were growing so quickly, they decided that if they were going to study them and select drugs based on what they studied, they would stop them from growing. And so there was a generation of doctors who did cancer growth curves and get cancer proliferation models, none of which really worked. So everybody sort of abandoned the field. 
We came along in the 90s and onward and recognized this whole idea that cancer had to be killed, that cancer was a cell survival signal. And, and when we flipped over to that, a lot of people said, well, we've already done that and it doesn't really work. And in point of fact, they really hadn't ever done that, but they were kind of wedded to their own way of thinking. So we've been a little bit out there in the woods trying to explain to people that the new field of cancer medicine will be cellular biology measured on an individual basis using cell death measures, using these, these, these correct measures of drug effect. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess, unfortunately, many people who go through biopsies and then go on to treatments get these generic treatments. And, and I can tell you, for anyone who's listening who's had chemotherapy, they're going to know the words cytoxin, adriamycin, and taxol very well. Uh, yeah, I know I do. Because everybody gets it. Yeah. yeah, everybody gets it. Everybody uh -huh. gets it. Now, I have a I have a personal story, current uh, story. One of our our uh, longtime friends developed breast cancer, and we recently did a biopsy, and she has a form of cancer that may not respond quite as well. And lo and behold, she's not sensitive to that combination. And we had to weigh in and get the biopsy done ourselves because no one was going to take the time to figure this out. So, luckily, I was able to get this patient biopsied. My colleagues here at Memorial Medical Center were kind enough to do the do the biopsy for us, and and we are going to change the treatment that she's going to get because she was not sensitive to that standard off-the-shelf treatment. She needs something different. And, and that will be reported out this week. We just finished the study. And either I or one of my colleagues will assume her care and make sure she gets the right thing. I wish I could tell you that everybody gets the luxury of that approach. Most people don't. And I, I wish more did. I do too. And is that a result of just kind of the best practices of oncology or is that because of our insurance companies or what has an influence over that that prevents everyone from getting that kind of care? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons, but I guess if you think about medicine, medicine was once a very artful undertaking. The patient doctor relationship was sacrosanct and there was a great deal of personal interaction and doctors and patients became friends and kind of comrades in arms. Today, medicine has become corporatized. And so corporations like certainty, they want to know exactly who's going to get what when. So if they, if you say to them, well, gee, we're going to be individualizing the therapies and we're going to be crafting our therapies, well, they say, well, you know, we're not uh, we're not a, a high-end venue here. We're a, we're just General Motors. We just turn out the same car every time, exactly the same. And so, I think that there is a real collision about to occur. Mm -hmm. The collision is between corporate medicine which is this increasingly standardized approach so that you can predict all the drug uses and all that sort of stuff and, and do 10-year out projections, and, and, and the more individualized medicine, which is what patients are clamoring for. I mean, people really don't want to be treated like something off a conveyor belt. They want to be treated individually, but it gets in the way of this kind of corporate model. So, so yeah, I think there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of, of, a, of a crash where the people that want what's right for them and the, and the, and the medical systems and the insurers who want everybody to get the same thing are going to have it out. I'm, I'm not sure who's going to win. Hopefully, the customized wins. <laughs> That's what I'm hopeful of. I hope. I, yeah, I'm hopeful but, as well. And, and, and even saying that if you take a customized approach to treating breast cancer, let's say, it's not necessarily less toxic because we're still using toxic agents, but it's more effective or has a higher cure rate. Would that be correct? Well, I think that basically what you do is you take bad drugs and give them better. 
And so, to be honest, I don't love the current collection of chemotherapies. I, 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 don't, I don't love the fact that they're so toxic. I don't love the fact that they cause a the bone marrow suppression and side effects. But I do use them when they work. The problem is almost half, maybe half of the people that get drugs are, are at least amongst the drugs are getting, getting the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And and if a patient is getting the wrong drug, they're not only not getting better, they're getting worse. Mm-hmm. They're getting side effects and toxicity, and they're not getting the right thing while they're getting the wrong thing. So on a lot of levels, the prospect of getting the wrong treatment to me is very unappealing. It's 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 toxic. It's 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 punishing to the body, and it's prolonging the disease process while the ro- the right drug is still waiting to be used. So, on a lot of levels, I don't like the idea of generic therapies. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm on I'm on your side with that one. So, uh, when it, let's talk a little bit about how treatment is handled at the Nagorno Cancer Institute, and if someone was in treatment. Would they come there? Is this a place where people receive chemotherapy or is this a place where more you're focused on analyzing someone's, the type of cancer they have and offering guidance or input on the most effective treatment for them? Well, we do treat patients. I do see patients, but there's only uh, so many patients that I can see. So our our laboratory capabilities extend well beyond my clinical activities. Um, The laboratory enables the individual patient to take charge of their cancer. If you submit a tissue to us and the sample reveals activity for Taxotere instead of Taxol, or or cisplatin instead of cytoxin, then I think that based on literature and experience, one can then go back to their treating physician and say, let's use this instead of that. And and so we do a lot of that kind of consultative work where we grant patients the opportunity to actually engage in their own treatment selection and their own treatment choices, particularly because much of what we're testing is within the literature. I mean, we're not we're not making up new treatments. We're just taking the five or seven or 10 different combinations that a patient might receive and recommending the one that most closely fits their biology. We usually recommend that patients who come to us are off active treatment. So they're either newly diagnosed and there are some uncertainties. For example, one of the areas we've done a lot of work in is called triple negative breast cancer. Some years ago, triple negative breast cancer was considered this kind of rare and difficult to treat entity and no one knew what to do with it. And we realized that many of these triple negative breast cancer patients were candidates for different classes of drugs. In fact, I wrote rather extensively some years ago on the idea that we should be introducing the platinum, carboplatin and cisplatin into this population. I wrote my first paper almost 20 years ago on that topic. Mm -hmm. And we then went on to pioneer combinations that have proven uniquely effective in that disease. So in the patients who present with an unusual diagnostic subtype, something where they're not quite sure what to do with triple negative, for example, as I mentioned, or other variants, that's one group that we step up to and say, you know, let's let's get the right thing up front. The second group that we see quite a lot of are people who have been through conventional or standard treatments and have recurred. So they have sort of biologically declared themselves not to fit the, the, the normal and customary expectation. And those people need something different. And we will step up to the plate and look at other drugs and combinations for them. And then, then the final group are the people who have sort of failed everything. And at that point, they're exploring you, you know, truly experimental approaches. And we keep dozens of small molecules in our laboratory. We can test you know, phosphonosyl kinase inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors and, and, and all manner of these targeted agents. So we can really explore 
what a patient who is looking toward quote unquote experimental therapies, sometimes we can explore where they should go to get that. So, so there are a lot of different levels. The ones that were upfront in need of an unusual treatment, those who are failed conventional therapies, and then those who are really looking for, for anything that might possibly work. And do you find, so because you were saying you do use drugs that are, have been studied and that other oncologists are familiar with, are they receptive to the information you get if someone has their cancer analyzed by your institute? They're treating doctors? Yeah, I think, yeah. again, again for the, for the circumstance where the doctor is confronting a fairly straightforward treatment, for example, there are... Um, there's, there are combinations today. One combination is cytoxin and adriamycin. It's widely used. Another combination is cytoxin and taxotere, also mm-hmm. widely used. They've been tested head-to-head. They're comparable. So, for example, I've had physicians who a patient uh, comes to me, and we test them, and we find that cytoxin and adriamycin is not as good as cytoxin and taxotere. Now, there's mm-hmm. no reason why the doctor would be so wedded to giving adriamycin, which is kind of toxic, that they couldn't just flip over to another standard uh, uh, treatment. So yeah, in those circumstances, usually the physicians, I would hope and believe, will be responsive. Um, When we get into the more complicated patients where we're finding treatments that the doctors may not be familiar with, sometimes we actually send the doctor our protocols because we've done so many studies over the years, we've actually developed treatment regimens and we will send to the doctor the dosing and the schedules that we use. We have a, I just got a lovely Christmas card from a patient with a recurrent ovarian cancer and, and she's on a slightly unusual combination, but she wrote this delightful card and said how well she feels within the first couple of cycles. So yeah, I think the doctors that are receptive to the idea of crafting their therapies to the individual can get great outcomes. And, and, and we use, in many circumstances, standard, conventional, off-the-shelf therapies. We're not, we're not inventing new drugs. We're just using the same drugs better. Okay, that's great. And so if someone was in treatment now, you know, my audience is breast cancer survivors, and a lot of them are still in treatment. Are there specific questions that you would suggest that would be good to ask their oncologists? Well, clearly, I think patients want to be uh, engaged in their management. So, for example, particularly, uh, you know, the upcoming uh, lectures that I'll be giving on metastatic disease, patients with metastatic disease have to have to stay on top of their disease because if the disease progresses, if it isn't responding well, you need to be making decisions in real time. Mm-hmm. So the patients, I think, should try to engage in some of the um, parameters of their disease so that they can know if they're getting better or worse so that they can begin to prepare if necessary for the next line of treatment. So I, I like personally in this setting to use tumor markers. You know, I, I, if a patient has a has a, an advanced breast cancer and they have an elevated CA 15.3 or an elevated CA 2729 or an elevated CEA, whatever they're measuring the blood test, mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea for the patients to inquire, you know, how how are my markers? Is this getting better or worse? Not so much that you change treatment immediately because of a marker change, but so that you get that early warning, you know, like, like the storm clouds are, 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 are uh, you know, brewing so that you, you know, oh, in the next weeks or month or two, we need to be looking at something else. Patients need to kind of get, you know, get engaged in their, in their treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I, I, I think patients should realize is that cancer is a whole body illness. It's not, it's not just a disease of the breast or a disease of some site of metastasis. Cancer is a disease that thrives in, in an environment of, of, of uh, shall we say, metabolic unhealth. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So patients are increasingly interested in how their lifestyle and diet and things can impact their cancers. And in point of fact, it does. It, mm-hmm. it, this isn't idle speculation. This is reality. Mm-hmm. So patients should, should examine their activity levels. Exercise is therapeutic. Um, smart dietary regimes, not abstemious, not restrictive diets. You don't have to become ketogenic. You can be low glycemic, calorie restricted. You can maintain regular physical activity. Uh, you can examine things like sleep patterns. I mean, there's a lot that goes into health. And I think that doctors have not been adequately trained to ask about or consider the contributions of these lifestyle changes. So yeah, I mean, patients should get engaged in their own health. And that's a great open for my next question because you wrote a talk called Garlic, Wine, and Chocolate. I hope I have that correct. And uh, in that you talk about lifestyle and complementary or alternative medicine. So what, what are your thoughts on that? And as not just someone in treatment, but as a survivor, what are some of the main tips you would say on incorporating these kinds of healthy lifestyles or any maybe kind of alternative treatments or complementary treatments into their life. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, I have given a lecture on garlic wine and chocolate largely because it's so popular <laughs> and everybody <laughs> likes to eat well and drink wine and have chocolate. Uh, but it turns out that foodstuffs, we, we as a species have, have succeeded and thrived by learning and consuming things that are good for us. So when I wrote a major treatise some years ago on garlic as a medicinal, I'm actually an editor of the Journal of Medicinal Food, and and when I wrote a treatise for the for the inaugural issue, I pointed out that we don't like garlic uh, because it tastes good. We like garlic because it's good for us, and we've learned to like the flavor. That's that's actually true of many herbs and spices and things that we eat. We've learned to eat and enjoy them because our body told us generations ago that those members of our society that ate them did better. And that turns out to be a kind of biological lesson in real time. Human species evolved with their food supply. So when we talk about lifestyle and food supply and things like that, yeah, I mean, it is profoundly important for our well-being that we return to the biology that we were given as a species. And that biology needs a certain amount of sleep. And that sleep should be in dark. And the sleep should be, um, try to, you know, interestingly, to try to keep it with diurnal uh, rhythms. You've probably heard, you probably know that women uh, who work night shifts have higher incidence of cancer. It's a, it's a frightening reality that right. when you disrupt fundamental biological realities, there are night shift worker issues that can induce a state of, of, of uh, diminished health. And cancer is one of the side effects of that. So, so yeah, and, and there are other, like for example, we know that, that obesity, particularly post-menopausal obesity, and again, it's not entirely well understood, but we know that women who are a little heavier when they're younger, Mm-hmm. may do okay, but if they remain heavier as they get older in their postmenopausal, they have a much higher incidence of breast cancer. So, so these are lifestyle changes that we, we can adapt. Um, another, another one, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about exercise and, mm-hmm. and activity. It turns out that, that many um, people don't realize that exercise is, is really virtually a drug. When one exercises, they induce a, a change in the metabolism that is very healthy. And for any of the patients who may be undergoing treatment 
for metastatic disease, they will know a drug called Afinitor or Everlimus. Afinitor is a chemotherapy drug. It's a pill. Um, and that pill works at the level of a metabolic pathway that is directly connected to exercise. Really? So, so in a way, we've we've become a funny society where we'd rather take a pill than 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 walk around the block. You know, we're yeah. we're looking for an exercise pill. So, so yeah, I mean, these are really fundamental issues that I don't think have been addressed enough in the in the medical literature or in medical school that these lifestyle changes and 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 behavior patterns can have a very big and long term effect on our health. Yes, you are preaching to the choir. I love it. And, you know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the exercises medicine movement that's through ACSM and Kaiser Permanente and, you know, just really trying uh -huh. to focus on how critical exercise is. And I love what you said about, you know, we need an exercise pill that I've seen presentations where they show all the benefits of exercise and say, you know, if someone introduced a pill that did all these things, billions of people would be flocking to get this pill. And yet we know we can do it every day and we just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think that, that people are more in charge of their health than they realize and, and exercise is a big part of it. And it doesn't have to be strenuous exercise. You can mm -hmm. do regular, I mean, walking is actually a very good exercise and, and uh, you don't have to be a big, you know, marathon runner. In fact, I'm not even sure that's so good for you, but, but I think <laughs> that, that um, walking uh, swimming. I'm a rower. I mean, if you if you maintain a, a, a even keel heart rate on a regular basis, that's it, what it does biochemically is to alter the the central metabolism, the mitochondrial metabolism, and, and 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 change actually reconfigure how your body makes and uses energy. It's 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 profound. That's awesome. I love it. So you are actually going to be the keynote speaker at the Susan G. Komen metastatic breast cancer meeting coming up in January and January 4th. And could you tell us a little bit about what, what will your topic be and what do you hope people learn from, from your talk at this event? Well, thanks for the introduction. I, I, um, I was trying to think what would interest a population? To my understanding, this is going to be a, a, uh, a rather diverse population, and it will also be almost, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost completely a population of people who are, who are confronting metastatic cancer, metastatic breast cancer. Fortunately, of the 268,000 more or less breast cancers we see each year, only six to 10 percent present with metastatic disease. So that's the good news. Yes. Um, the bad news is up to 30 percent of people who present with more localized disease recur. So when you do the numbers, you know, you had 10% uh, to 30%, you've got 40% of that 268,000 people confronting metastatic disease as they go on in their life. That's a big number. And we have not spent we have not spent enough time worrying about metastatic breast cancer. We do a lot of, lot of outreach for mammograms, and we do a lot of outreach for screening for genetic disorders. But when a patient is confronted with metastatic cancer, they're not likely to live much longer today than they were many decades ago. We are not making headway in this most devastating of presentations. Yeah. So I was, I was thinking about this presentation and the audience and what would they be interested in at first I was thinking of different topics but I I sent it I decided upon a uh, an article I wrote for the Wall Street Journal this past July and the title was every cancer patient is one in a billion mm -hmm. and the reason I did that was in my article in the Wall Street Journal I described how we are each as patients very unique 
and that you can go down through the mathematics of the genetic sequences that get to cancer and realize that it is about one in a billion. You could actually argue that every person sitting in that audience of the several hundred will be in the audience and however many will be online watching it, almost no single patient with any form of breast cancer is, is the same as the one next to them or, or across the room. They are mm -hmm. actually uniquely different. And so our job and my message to these people is we need to get better at making individual decisions. You and I were talking a little earlier about how we have this sort of collision between the kind of corporate thinking about organized medicine and everybody's the same, mm -hmm. and then the growing desire for patients to be taken individually. And I, and I guess if I land on any side, if I'm the disruptor, I'm an individual patient kind of guy. I, I think that we would get a lot further with a lot more patients if we took them seriously. And if wherever possible, we studied each patient's biology. Do you need Taxol or Taxotere or Platinum or, or Cytoxin or Adriamycin or Venorolamine or Capsidabine? There are all these different drugs yet today when you go to the NCCN guideline or, or when you go to different, different recommendations, they're so standard. They just say, well, if you've got this, take that. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, you, you, I can't imagine that if you go to, I don't know where you like to shop, but if, if, if you, you wouldn't walk into Target and, and go into the men's department and buy a shirt, I mean, you wouldn't, you right. wouldn't let someone foist something onto you that didn't fit you. Right. Yet when you go to your doctor and you're going to be confronting these poisonous therapies, they just push something at you. I, I, I'm offended by that. So yeah, I guess the message for this group is going to be to try to to, to you know, take charge of their disease where possible, use individual tissue biology to, to, to guide therapy, uh, where possible use other tools. I'm not against genomic analysis. It doesn't offer us as many insights as we'd like to think, but it's certainly worth conducting. Make sure that you don't carry a predisposition that there isn't some broken genetic element like BRCA or ATM. Mm -hmm. um, learn about diet and lifestyle changes that might um, help each patient uh, live a longer and better life. Recognize that the impact of lifestyle can be very profound, can be therapeutic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, the message to this crowd is that, that this isn't a hopeless uh, situation, that they need to, to, to sort of take charge of those things they can control and, and have a participatory role in their own management. Cancer, cancer is a uh, team effort. Yeah, and do you think that it's because we're putting so many resources towards screening and early detection that we haven't had such a focus on those who are living with metastatic disease? Well, um, early detection carries an enormous uh, benefit. I mean, many cancers from colon and lung to breast and ovary mm -hmm. can be more readily cured if they're detected. So I'm not against early detection at all. Right. I, I'm, I'm all for finding these diseases early. Right. Uh, I'm actually even more in favor of preventing them entirely. Of course. But, but the, the, the issue is that the reason I think people are, are uh, sort of less enthusiastic in the metastatic setting is that the tools at our disposal, the, the, the arrows in our quiver for cancer therapy, I think were not well conceived and, de and devised. I mean, these cyclophosphamides and, and, and adriamycins are 50-year-old drugs. And now if they were going to cure people by giving them differently or in different sequences or doses or schedules, I, I'm pretty sure we'd have cured cancer already. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, 
that we've got these incredibly blunt instruments that we keep foisting on patients. And, and I think the reason that metastatic disease has been less exciting is that we're not, we're not making the headway. I, I would personally, if I were granted the opportunity to really study this disease differently, we would be completely focused on, on the whole metabolic basis of cancer. We published a, a treatise on, on breast cancer, a, almost a, over a thousand patient study where we looked at what constitutes the bioenergetics, the, the metabolism, the, 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 the uh, nutrient uh, features of cancer. And, and we think that there are potentially targetable explanations for cancer that we're not exploring. We're so wrapped up in DNA and, and informatics and, and Illumina platforms and all the genomics that we're not looking at this sort of glaring, obvious fact that cancer is a disease of cells that want to make and use energy differently. And, and I think that metastatic disease and, and, and all levels of cancer will probably be better managed when we get down to the nitty gritty of what makes cancer tick. And at least, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I believe that it's bioenergetics. I think that it's cellular physiology and cellular biology and mitochondrial physiology, bioenergetic processes that we have not targeted adequately. And that's why we're just not getting ahead of this disease. Hmm. And is there anything that we as patients, survivors, consumers, loved ones of cancer patients, is there anything that we can do to try to keep the power of the decision-making for treatment in the hands of our physicians rather than corporations and insurance companies, or even to put more emphasis on that kind of study, on looking at the, the whole cellular metabolism piece of it more? Is it a matter of where we donate? Is it a, a senators we write to? Is there anything at all we can do about that? <laughs> You know, um, as a field, metabolism is in its nascency. It's still just growing. It's still just developing. So I don't know if there's a, a, a particular senator or vice presidential candidate <laughs> or anyone who's specifically running on metabolism. But I would say that an organization as august and as powerful as the Coleman Foundation could begin to examine uh, granting uh, funds and resources to investigators who are getting out of the gene and into cellular physiology and energetics. I think that one of the problems is that the, the last generation of cancer researchers were almost uniformly gene guys. So, so brilliant breakthroughs, Peru et al. with their discovery of the luminal A and B and subtypes of basaloids and, and a lot of really interesting prognostic information, that is, finding out what group you're in. Very, very, very good work, really worthy work. But where we've not done enough is what to do about it. And I think, I hope, that as we push this along and as we try to get the Coleman's and the funding entities to do it, maybe they will smile upon investigators who are doing more biochemistry and less molecular biology, less, less gene stuff and more, more real cell stuff. And, and you know, I'm certainly interested in cellular biology and, and funding work that, that looks at how cells behave and how, how these organoid and 3D models work. And that's, that's coming into its own, something that we started some years ago is becoming really a, a field in and of itself. There's actually whole symposia now on a field that, that, that we were uh, sort of alone in 20 years ago. Um, beyond that, though, I think metabolism may be a very, very important direction. And if people are interested in 
uh, guiding monies, maybe you would uh, uh, ask that the funding entities take a, a closer look at these investigators, people who are doing important work in mitochondrial physiology. There's work out of Cornell and other centers to Columbia University in New York, groups in Boston, um, other groups that are really looking at cell metabolism. I, I really, I can't stress enough how important I think that will be. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And I wonder what your thoughts are on aftercare. So the space that I work in is women who are recovering from breast cancer treatment. And they're dealing with just, you know, the psychological, the emotional, and the physical short-term and long-term effects of having been through chemotherapy, radiation, and the trauma of having been a cancer patient. What are your thoughts on, or what do you know about maybe programs that are being developed for aftercare? When women are finished with their, or finished, as I say, quote unquote finished, uh, when we move into that space where treatment is done, we're released from our physicians and they say, you know, come back in six months, come back in a year. And they're dealing with a lot of things like neuropathy and joint pain or whatever the aromatase inhibitors might be causing. What do you think about the value of, you know, clinically supervised aftercare programs for cancer survivors? Well, you know, it's interesting that um, when you look at the literature on degenerative diseases, like, for example, <clears throat> people who have um, osteoarthritis, mm -hmm. osteoarthritis is a sort of wear and tear phenomenon. And, and there were for many years, people would say, well, you don't want to exercise or you don't want to be active because you've got this bad knee or bad head. It turns out that, that there is a certain amount of restorative response to activity. You can actually take people who have, have some aches and pains and things, get them more active, and over time they regain function. So, mm -hmm. so I guess in, in terms of cancer, cancer is, is you know, obviously the, the uh, diagnosis of cancer requires incredibly toxic and punishing therapies. Right. But at the end of it, you're a little bit damaged. I mean, you're mm -hmm. like somebody who's got arthritis or something. And, and in fact, it turns out that I think it is extremely important that people regain their activity and get back into a lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle, particularly exercise. Mm -hmm. And as much as people sort of don't want, like, you know, so often someone will say, well, I'm just too tired mm -hmm. or I just don't have the energy to do it. And, and you've really got to push yourself because physical activity, we talked about this twice now, mm -hmm. physical activity is a therapy. It is therapy. It's not just makes you feel good. doesn't make you breathe deeper. It resets adenosine monophosphate kinase. I mean, this is like serious physiology. Uh -huh. And so people need to realize that they are, they are, they are taking a, a therapy when they do exercise. And also, and something that I think is grossly understudied is sleep, sleep patterns. We, we, all, we have very unhealthy sleep patterns. As you probably realize, there's a lot of illness, a lot of human illness, and a lot of, a lot of accidents and auto accidents and all kinds of stuff that are to do with sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. We're all sleep deprived. Everybody's sleep deprived. Right. So another thing people have to learn is sleep health. And, and to learn to, uh, to, you know, the physical activity that creates the state of exhaustion that puts you into a better sleep pattern. <clears throat> learn to sleep in a, a more darkened environment. Turns out that Nighttime light isn't very good for us. Uh, it turns out, interestingly, as you probably know, that substances like melatonin, which is a natural product produced in the brain that induces a state of sleepiness, melatonin can also be taken as a, as a supplement, and it's relatively non-toxic. I don't know if there's any toxicity to it. And it actually has an impact on particularly estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer. So, so there are rather simple things 
that may be very healthful that we over, that, that we overlook that we that we should take more seriously from a standpoint of lifestyle and diet and that sort of thing i mean we're very i mean obviously i like garlic <laughs> but um, <laughs> diet is important and we want to look at things like cruciferous vegetables the cauliflowers and the <clears throat> broccolis of the world mm-hmm. because they really <clears throat> are very uh healthful and and therapeutic indole 3 carbonyl diindole methane found in these foodstuffs are therapeutic so there there is a whole process of regaining health and and it's dietary and it's lifestyle and uh yeah i think it's incredibly important people should return to their lives after they've can- have cancer they should not be damaged goods mm-hmm. they should go back to their lives right I think it was a video that I watched recently about someone, a cancer patient that you had worked with, and she was on metformin. And I've read other case studies and things where metformin is being used oftentimes in people after their cancer treatment long term. And so is that indicative of the importance of managing blood sugar after cancer? Well, uh, metformin is a particularly interesting drug. Yes, you. I published a paper uh, Several years, a couple of years ago, on metformin, uh, there was some news coverage of a patient of mine from Brazil who had a uniquely yes. good response to it. Um, but metformin, interestingly, works at the same level as what I mentioned earlier: exercise. You see mm-hmm. that cascade, which is the um, complex one of the mitochondrion feeding through LKB1 or STK11, and then to AMP kinase to mTOR. That pathway, that pathway is the metabolic pathway of exercise, mm-hmm. the metabolic pathway of metformin. Mm-hmm. It's the metabolic pathway of everolimus. So you see, these are connected. These are fundamentally connected. And, and metformin, as a, you know, some people think they ought to put it in the water supply. I mean, it's, it's, it's wow. got this salubrious effect. And, and it's relatively non-toxic. And it can biochemically affect the same, very same metabolic pathways that that exercise does and other things do. So yes, um, you've probably heard of fasting, intermittent fasting. Of course. Same same mechanism. Same mechanism. These are all directly connected to one of the mediators of of metabolic health, AMP kinase. So yeah, I mean, it, this more and more points us toward very basic fundamental features of the cell that I think we overlooked. I think that the bio, I did a, a TED talk some years ago, mm-hmm. and the title was "The Future of Cancer Research Lies Behind Us," mm-hmm. and the principal discussion point of the TED talk was that we have for, forgotten much of the brilliant biochemistry of the last century in favor of the new shiny object genomics. Mm-hmm. And while we're all dancing around DNA, all of the biochemistry of life is going by us. And we should be reinvigorating our interest in the biochemistry and the enzymology and the physiology of cancer. That's where the answers will lie. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think, that, I think that these dietary issues and, and these lifestyle issues and exercise and, and drugs like metformin all tie into the biochemistry that we forgot at our peril, that we, mm-hmm. that we have to revisit. And, and yes, you're right. I, I've written on that and, and, and metformin is a very interesting drug and some people just take it. They just say, you know, it has a good effect. And, and some people are just taking metformin as a prophylactic, as a preventative. Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, you're speaking my language. You know, that's the one thing that I focus on with my ladies is, you know, 
eating real foods, moving your body on a regular basis. And it's just so important as that uh, preventative and healing and just so many benefits. So I love hearing what you have to say. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the last part of all that is emotional and that people have to realize that, that a, a depressed patient is less likely to get through this. We know now that our immune system is in direct connection to our emotional state. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that your patients have to realize is that they, they can't let this cancer overwhelm them emotionally. They've, they've got to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, particularly if they've come through therapy. Patients who are, are more upbeat and more positive and optimistic can actually augment their immunity. So, so a lot of things that, that, that go into sort of our, our uh, sort of old wives tales about medicine, a lot of them turn out to be true, that, mm -hmm. that a happy or upbeat patient is more likely to do well. And, and that is a truism. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to that attitude is everything, right? I guess. I guess. Yeah. Well, gosh, I thank you so much for making so much time to be on the show today. I really, really appreciate all of your insights. And I am going to post links to the Nagorni Cancer Institute, to your books. I think everybody should read it. And I wonder if there's, and to your TED Talks as well, is there anything else or any other way that you would recommend people getting hold of you or finding out more about you and your work? Well, our website is a good site. Uh, uh, we, uh, we're happy to field inquiries. Uh, as I've said earlier, we like to think of every patient as an individual and where the possibility arises if someone's having surgery or there's going to be something that can be studied. Sometimes we can point patients in the right direction, avoid toxic treatments and get the best outcomes. So yeah, I, the patients should be aware of this. You know, Whether it applies directly to them is an individual decision. But yeah, we we very much happy to help patients in these circumstances and, and hope that it's been helpful uh, to your audience. Oh, I'm sure it has. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank, thank you for having me. Wow. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed being honored to get to participate in that interview. He is such an eloquent speaker and just so well experienced and knowledgeable in the field of cancer and so compassionate with the way that he actually is considering the experience of the cancer patient and not only wanting to figure out the most effective way to treat them, but in caring for their well-being during that time. So I will post the links to Dr. Nagorni's website, his TED Talk, his Wall Street Journal article, and his book in the show notes, which you can find at lauralummer.com forward slash 68. So please check all that out because there's even more great information in those resources. Now, if you are a regular listener or you just enjoy hearing the Breast Cancer Recovery Coach podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you could take the time to leave an honest review for the show in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't checked out my website, lauralummer.com, go there now and download my free guide, Care, Four Steps to Healing After Breast Cancer. And I actually talk about some of the things that we addressed in this episode, which is beginning the practice of reducing stress in your life, looking at nutrition, and especially exercise, and different ways to approach exercise so that it works for you in your lifestyle in a way that you enjoy. I loved one of the things that Dr. Nagorni said about how he does rowing, and you can do walking, and it doesn't have to be this crazy, intense, strenuous type of exercise that so many people think they have to do, and that so many people 
are resistant to because it doesn't sound like fun. And exercise, physical activity can be fun. It does not have to be boring and strenuous and traumatizing. So check out CARE, Four Steps to Healing After Breast Cancers, for some beginning steps. And also go to Facebook and find our free group, the Breast Cancer Recovery Group, where you can join and become a part of a community of breast cancer survivors who want to thrive in their life after breast cancer treatment and share their encouragement and experience with each other. Thank you so much again for listening and I'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. You've tamed the voices in your head. You've put your courage to the test. Laid all your doubts to rest. Your mind is clearer than before. Your heart is full and wanting more. Your future's at the door. Give it all you got. No hesitating. You've been waiting all your life. This is your moment.